0: go big, go hard, or go home. You, you had no choice but to exceed, if possible, what they had set out for you to do.
1: Welcome to Intermission at the CSO, taking you behind the scenes at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and sharing stories and insight into what makes this one of the world's greatest orchestras. I'm John Hagstrom, and I play in the CSO's trumpet section, today we are featuring just one of the CSO's musicians Jim Smelter a member of the CSO horn section since the year 2000 but he started playing with the orchestra as a substitute in 1986. Jim was born in Chicago, but grew up in Joliet. He studied at Northwestern University, and before joining the orchestra, he studied also with several CSO Horn Section members, including the orchestra's former principal horn, Dale Clevenger, and Norman Schweikert, who was Jim's predecessor as the CSO's second horn player. And that's a chair Jim has now occupied for 20 years. Now, most people know that the horn is a brass instrument, but the horn is one of the most versatile of any of the instruments in the orchestra. So, uh, Jim, welcome to Intermission at the CSO, and what can you tell us? What does the horn do in an
0: orchestra? Of course, it's it's a brass instrument. So in the brass section, it's not the most brilliant instrument, but it, it provides a support for the brilliance of the trumpets and, and provides just stability for the foundation of the brass sound. But I think one of the most important purposes of the horn is it's an absolute bridge and link between the, the woodwinds and the strings because it's very often used... In, in close conjunction with the woodwind section. It's a bridge to the string sound, particularly cello sound. So to say the horn has a mellow sound is true, but it also has a brilliant sound, if you think of it as a brass instrument. So it's really a, a chameleon instrument to, to intertwine between the strings, the woodwinds, and the brass. I want to
1: ask you more specifically, because your role, as is my role, we don't play the solos very much. We're second. We're the second part. And so... If someone has been in their high school band or orchestra and they were the second chair, it's usually because they wanted to be first chair, but they failed. And so they're secretly hoping maybe they could still be first chair. There's a, you know, that kind of element of competition is, is usually embedded in a student experience. But in our experience, playing in the section... Uh, is not just uh, waiting to see if you might move up. In fact, we take great pride in the role of our part, the way the composer writes it, and I'm hoping you can describe your way of approaching the second part, the kind of reflexes, the kind of priorities, the kind of uh, achievement you look for
0: to to bring your part to such a, a great quality. That's a great question with some good points. You know, you have to be a master of your part. You have to strive to be the best at your job, your job function, your job duties. But the most important one of those is to really be part of the group, the whole group. And at certain moments, split seconds, you're in complete harmony, literally, or just in walking side by side with uh, another instrument 30 feet away from you in the orchestra or your colleague next to you, the third horn. It's not always that you're just following in the footsteps or the shadow of the first player and matching him and going with him. That's not enough. It's very specific for literally each nanosecond, each moment that you're you're on stage. And I think in... Schools and universities, people are taught, and just like high school bands, people are taught to play the first part, and those are the juicy solos, and that's what you get tested on in auditions. But one thing that's not, in my opinion, taught so much in school is, is, is how to listen, the value of listening, um, and the hardest thing is how to improve that.
1: We make a great point about listening because every member of the orchestra is constantly adjusting how they play their part uh, to fit together within the orchestra in the best possible way. And I I remember hearing the CSO when I was growing up and um, being so impressed by not just the power of the sound, but by the unity of how the players align themselves together. And um, so I want to ask you about your first time actually performing with the orchestra. That, that, That
0: has to be really memorable for you. Well, it's something you'll never forget ever in your life. And it was in March of 1986, and the CSO was about ready to go on tour to Japan and Hong Kong. The first rehearsal was the Rite of Spring with Daniel Barenboim, and you'll never forget it. Barenboim came out, no score, just turned to the orchestra, bassoon started, and the, the piece unfolded, and Barenboim didn't have a score and we went on for a little bit and then he stopped and he pointed out some instruments that he thought needed to be together and and uh, the the second oboe and the bass flute here and then just these combinations of things that I was I was just blown away I couldn't I couldn't believe that I was sitting in in the middle of this
1: it's bigger than you you know I feel like I my first time playing was Bruckner 9 at Ravinia and the big the first big 2d I actually stopped playing I couldn't believe it. With the energy, the horn section coming at me, and being in the middle of it, it was just overwhelming. And you know, two seconds later, I had to like play. It's like, well, I can't. I'm no longer a a consumer. I have to, to contribute to this somehow. So you played as a substitute with the Chicago Symphony for you know quite a few years before you became a member. And what is that life like as a substitute player?
0: Well, you have to quickly leave the mindset of the student or the newly post student and be a professional just on the spot. And the colleagues around you consider you to be one of them because there's the expectation that you can play your part like them and you have to blend and match them uh, instantly of course it's difficult but you have the sound in your ear from your your teachers and uh, all the learning that you've been doing for many many years but for the audience they look down there and they don't know if it's somebody uh, on cloud nine because it's their first concert in the Rite of Spring, in the first performance, I remember looking, just glancing down at the horn, you're checking the slides or something, and I saw a cat hair on my leg. I thought, oh my gosh, look at that, a cat hair on my leg. Then I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my place, and I'm going to mess up, and it's the first night, and how how could I be thinking about the stupid cat hair on my leg? But the audience doesn't know if you've been doing this for decades and decades, and um, I played 14 years as a regular sub, and so the audience gets to know you, the orchestra gets to know you. In fact... I remember when the personnel manager came to announce we had uh, a new uh, horn player, a position had been filled, um, people came up to me in the first rehearsal break and said, what happened? Did you leave and go to another orchestra and come back? And I said, no, I, I was never in this orchestra, not as a member, but as a, as a guest for all those years. I don't want to say it was anticlimactic, because for me, of course, it was a huge moment to, to win the job. But it was, it was just a, a continuation of what you had been doing before, but with a whole new set of expectations that you're going to surpass what we know you to have done in the past. And, of course, you have an official probation period, and that's taken very seriously, as it should be. And I remember the beginning of my probation. It seemed like every piece with second horn prominent, second horn passages, solos, duets with the principal, happened to come up. Beethoven Seven, Overture to Fidelio, Mahler One, Mahler Nine, Mahler Seven, uh, Beethoven Three. Those all came in the first season and the first part of the second season. So the the test came fast and heavy and hard in, in the beginning, and it really, it really was the attitude of, you know, go big, go hard, or go home. You, you had no choice but to exceed, if possible, what they had set out for you to do.
1: You know, the, um, this is an important distinction that I think a lot of people don't understand, and it has to do with the founding of the orchestra, and the reason for the Chicago Symphony As you know, it was Theodore Thomas, the founder of the orchestra, was someone who had his own orchestra, which they sort of brought into Chicago as the Chicago Orchestra. And what made it good was that the security of the players was already assured. They could devote their entire effort to their craft and not having to take you know, any little job that came along just to make ends meet. And so I guess I'm setting up a question to say, how does it change your life to suddenly have this transition where you can make your top priority the quality of what you do and not having to make sure you
0: get called enough for other jobs? It can be a difficult thing to be a freelancer. Uh, unfortunately, many times a freelancer is out of necessity. Uh, having to spend a lot of emotional energy managing their business, meaning hunting for work and things like that. I think that's a problem you see in the workplace in the country in a lot of different sectors is that people don't have a sense of security in the workplace and some, not all, have a reduced sense of um, responsibility to their company or their profession and that shouldn't be. People should be secure enough to be able to rise to their fullest. I remember when I won the job, I didn't think right away that, oh, okay, maybe I don't have to worry about my next paycheck. But it did become clear to me that you were now here for a different reason. It wasn't just a job, it was never just a job, but you have a responsibility to play in the most inspired way and to follow in the footsteps of those in front of you.
1: Following in footsteps at the CSO, I know, often requires filling some pretty big shoes, and I know that you and I also both grew up admiring the CSO's great principal brass players, and you also studied in college with the CSO's former principal horn player Dale Clevenger, who, since his retirement, is um, teaching at Indiana University, but you played second to him for thirteen years, and so please tell us what was
0: what was that like. Dale Clevenger was principal horn from February 1966, when I was five, almost six years old, until June 10th, 2013. And I had the great pleasure and and honor to sit next to him for 13 years uh, as his colleague and studied with him in college at Northwestern and continued to study with him when I was out of college and had a chance to play principal horn in his Elmhurst Symphony Orchestra, Dale was an, an amazing, of course, an amazing horn player, but an amazing person, just filled with energy and passion for his job, and he often said, um, he said, I don't, I don't know why I do it. I, I just do it. And you think about it, that really summed it up. He just sat down and played. Doesn't mean he didn't study his craft uh, when he was younger and work on things. Of course he did. But he was such a natural that he just did it. He just sat down and he did it. And he had a couple of sayings that he was famous for, which really epitomized what he thought about and how he approached it. He would often say, when I pick up the horn, he said, I am 99.9% sure I am going to hit that note. And when I don't, quite frankly, I am perplexed. <laughs> and he really meant it. He he would pick up the horn. He didn't think about if he's going to miss the note or not. He hated to hear people say, oh, the French horn is one of the most difficult instruments in the orchestra. He hated that, because that was a negative approach. And he said, it doesn't matter what it feels like, it matters how it sounds. He didn't experiment with mouthpieces and equipment, he just was a sit-down-and-do-it type of person. I remember as a young student saying to him, Uh, One time, Mr. Clevenger, I said, Mr. Clevenger, I said, you know, I see you come on stage before Mahler 5, and uh, you don't warm up. You just play a few notes I see on the stage, and the concert starts, and, and, you know, how do you do that? And he said, boy, I never warm up because I never cool down. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. It's absolutely true. That's just what he did. It was in his mind, and he's ready to go. I don't need to warm up, I'm ready to go. So there are a lot of Dale Clevenger stars. He's from Chattanooga. You think he spoke with a, with a Southern accent. He didn't until he got excited about something. Then it all came flowing out. That was his controlled uh, Midwest Chattanooga accent. I'll never forget when I was playing second horn to Dale and after the concert, he said, you did good boy and you know he he was proud of you and I'll never forget what that meant to me that this person was saying this it's 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 like a parent in terms of respect and and who you're following
1: There are so many moments in the orchestral repertoire where the first and second horn are, you know, beautifully intertwined, you know, seamlessly working together. And you're so good at that. But what are your favorite moments where the first and second horn are written prominently together?
0: Some of those moments that we would play in Ravel, and especially Debussy, were really magical because the orchestra probably did more classical and Germanic classical music, Mahler, things like that. Dale Clevenger loved French music. So for me to get to hear him change styles, change color, change articulations, change everything to play that, that was a real treat to get to play that. But I I would have to say for sure, one of the biggest moments would be say, uh, and it's it's only been done a few times in my career, uh, Mahler's third symphony in the later movements. It's so special because the the moment is for the horn section. the emotion um or part of the emotion is is coming from the horn section at that time, but um I could not give a a a single piece in a single place, but I attach many of the pieces that are special to me um to places because we just happen to do those pieces all around the world, thankfully, and so If we were to do that piece at home, my first thought goes to, oh, we played that in Vienna, or we played that in Buenos Aires, or something like that. We played that in Lucerne uh, on uh, 9-11, you know, that that type of memory. Right, I remember that very clearly, that we
1: played just a few hours after 9-11, all the events of that day, because it's six or seven hours later, we had to very quickly decide whether we'd play a concert, whether it was even safe to do so. It was a lot of confusion, but in the end, we decided to play, and it was one of the most memorable concerts, I think, of my life, because the audience was very sympathetic. We knew that we were all trying to just make sense of the day right. and then express ourselves, and it was um, It was unforgettable. most cso fans have no idea but you are currently the chairman of the members committee of the orchestra and most audience members they have no idea that there's a members committee what is what is that and what you know and so how do you describe what you do as a, as a leader of musicians in the ways that we govern ourselves and sort of establish a stability and a and a continuity and especially an
0: integrity Well, the fact of the matter is we are uh, in a union workplace, which means we have rules from a contract that must be followed both by us and by the management, and that would surround all aspects of our work life, our benefits, our compensation, rehearsal times and breaks, many, many details of uh, our working life. And the committee is the liaison between the players and the management. But you're, you're there to... Um, provide guidance for the process, and uh, in the most dignified way possible, represent them in negotiations, which are uncomfortable, because you're talking about money and some other serious things with your managers, and it's a negotiation, and it's the most humbling experience to, for example, to come, uh, you talk about some of the concerts and and moments that are memorable. Uh, There are are also the moments when you come on stage in the middle of a negotiation, and it it could have been an all-day or an all-night session, and things could be very tense or uh, just precarious uh, for, for continuing forward. And Or when it's concluded, and you come on stage, and now your job is to play your instrument with your colleagues, and you look around, and you think you're representing all of them, and they have placed their trust and faith in you to do this. It's the greatest thing to be able to serve your colleagues in the workplace.
1: Well, Jim, all of us in the orchestra are grateful to you for your investments in us as the members committee chairman, but especially for your great example as a musician and as a colleague. And we hope the commitment of all of the CSO musicians can inspire our listeners to imagine what dedicated work uh, can accomplish, not just in our lifetimes, but through generations of CSO players and supporters. So thanks again, Jim, for your time today. Thank you, John. And thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast. We hope you will take the time to explore and enjoy some of the great recordings made by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, some excerpts of which you have just heard. And we'll look forward to seeing you again soon at Symphony Center after our intermission at the CSO. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and links to the music you've heard, please visit CSO.org, where you'll also find complete and up-to-date information about the exciting programming we're planning this fall on CSO TV as part of our commitment to provide musical excellence both before and after our regular concerts resume at Symphony Center. And while you're visiting CSO.org, if you've enjoyed our podcast and would like to support the mission of the CSO, please consider a donation or sponsorship. Intermission at the CSO is produced by John Hagstrom and Scott Brewer for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Association. And thank you for listening. Next time on Intermission at the CSO... You cannot slow down when you see the brick wall coming before you. We'll be talking with CSO musicians to learn some of their secrets for how they perform at their best.
0: You have to run straight into it, but when it's over, it's like my heart rate has made up for lost time.
1: They'll describe some of the challenges they face and share how they overcome even the most stressful moments.
0: We've done it before. It can be done.
1: I learned a lot of new things myself doing these interviews, and I know you will too.
0: I feel like I'm laying my soul bare for the audience to see and to hear. And
1: you will hear all they have to say. Don't miss it next time on Intermission at the CSO.